Amen. Well, grab a Bible and open it with me to the book of Acts tonight. Open up God's Word and longing that God would speak to us in that space. Hopefully you brought a Bible. If you didn't, there are Bibles in front of you, in the chairs in front of you, page number on the screen. You can use an electronic device uh, if you want to follow along that way. But one way or another, we are inviting you to be in the Word of God with us, that it would be in this evening that God would speak to us through that, and longing that He just does that, longing that He takes His Word and maybe just off the, the, the page just shows you something that you know, hey, this verse is for me. And so with that as our aim, uh, Bible's there again before us. If you're joining us in the overflow online, you know the drill, but also same encouragement. Grab a Bible. Be with us in this so that we can be in this together. So let's ask Him right now that He would take His Word and help it to be at work in our lives. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it's right. Thank You that it's true. Thank you what it can do, where Jesus said that you told us that if we know this, if we know your truth, the truth would set us free. God, I ask for that. I ask that you would just speak life into us now. You know us. You know right where we are. Our lives are in different spaces. That's just simply true. Yet your word is enough, and I know, God, you could take your word and shine a light into our world even this evening, that it would be a light unto our path. It would be a a help to us right where we are. I know you're good, Lord. I know that that's exactly what you would long to do this evening, so I'm just asking for it. For me, for each of us here, that you would just give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand, and that your word would work in us what you have for us tonight. We ask for that right now. We submit this evening to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the great keys of living out the Christian life is learning how to keep up with God in many ways, just to follow Him in our lives. Think about it this way. It was Jesus who gave that invitation to the disciples, right? That He looked at them and simply said, follow me. Those words, in many ways, just ring across both that salvation experience and life itself again, that in some ways, you could look at a, at a true follower, a true Christian, and you could say, as we often do, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, that's what I'm seeking to do. I'm seeking to be one that follows him, and yet, sometimes that's where we get messed up. We lose that space of being one who follows, who tries in that sense to keep up with God in our lives. And in this study tonight, although it's much within the book of Acts, I want to draw your attention to it. And maybe it would be helpful if you could imagine it this way with me. Imagine that maybe you lived 3,500 years ago, There you were with the children of Israel making your way out of Egypt and, you know, into that wilderness land, into a territory you had never, ever been in before. Questions arise, like, how do we know? How do we know how to go? Where, how are we going to do this? And God does this amazing thing. There as they build the, 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 the tabernacle that's there, there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day that sits right over that that tabernacle. And then it tells us for 40 years, whenever it was time to move, the cloud just moved. 
whenever the cloud moved, they followed. In fact, I like the way it says it this way in Numbers chapter 9. It says, wherever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that, the children of Israel would journey. And the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. Wherever the cloud went, they followed. In fact, it goes on for about 10 more verses and just says the same thing over and over in different ways. If it moved, they moved. If it stayed, they stayed. If it moved every other day, they moved. If it stayed a space a week or a month, they stayed. Because their whole goal was wherever he's going, we're going to. Like where the cloud goes, you know, we're going to do that. And I just want you to imagine what it would be like to live there in that moment. I mean, where you just kind of wake up in the morning, you get out there and you just kind of look, oh, that's still there. We're still here, you know, kind of thing. And then you wake up one morning and the cloud's moving. And it's like, oh, honey, pack up the stuff, man. Pull everything, pull the tent down. We're, all, we're, we're on the move because the cloud just moved. And now we're going to follow that cloud to wherever it goes and where it stops, that's where we're going to stop. What an incredible picture of a journey. What an incredible picture of that. And yet I would hold before you that that's not something that's just found in history. It is an invitation that God has for our lives that in many ways we are those who are being called to be those who are followers, that we follow the Lord. And maybe you are. Maybe I'm saying some things this evening. You're like, well, Jim, that's what, how else would you do it? Well, I'm just pretty much aware that in our arrogance and pride and humanness, sometimes we just get this whole thing reversed. In our smallness, again, maybe not you, maybe this is just me, we sometimes think God should be following us. That, you know, we make decisions and then we're kind of hoping he keeps up with us. And yet the whole goal is to be followers. And so I want you to think about that. We're going to cover about half of this chapter this evening. Uh, there's just a bunch in it. And in that, we're going to cover a number of stories and little vignettes of different things. And it's going to flow back and forward. But we're going to try to continually to just land on this theme. I want you to watch God's guidance. I want you to watch how he's leading his people and at work in that. And wherever it lands, just longing that it would land inside of us to help us on that journey where God's calling us to go. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1, says it this way, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Quick pause, that just jumps off right off the the page and where we were last time. His death, who is Stephen? Stephen, the very first martyr, the very first man to lay down his life for Jesus. That was our last chapter. And Saul, we also know him as Paul, that's what his name's going to be later, he right now is an enemy of that, and he's consenting to that. So the very first Christian lays down their life for Jesus, dies a martyr's death, and then it tells us. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So we begin this space, and we think about what this is, and we want to think about this idea of following Jesus and what it looks like. And the very first thing that we're just kind of presented with is a great persecution arises against the church. I mean, that's its exact words, right? That it lets us know that now this is happening. A great persecution arose against the church. 
They'd already been suffering some. They had been uh, maligned. They had been beaten. They had been, you know, warned away from this. Stephen now has laid down his life, but now it breaks loose. Now it's one of those seasons where it's not just a little bit of persecution. It is great persecution. From that day to this, there are seasons of that. In God's plan and work, it happens that way. It's not that way always in any space, but there are times when it's just upside down, and that's hard to try to even imagine it, but I'd like you to try just for a moment. I mean, it's kind of space where your whole world just gets upended, where all of a sudden uh, it is illegal. It is a death threat to be a Christian. Uh, now, it, it's, it's horrendous. In fact, you get this little picture of it as Paul is there, Saul is at this moment an enemy, and it gives us this picture that he enters into houses. I mean, you've got to imagine this. You're sitting at dinner, and so he just kicks in the door. They, they enter into a house, and they drag off men and women, committing them to prison. Should you imagine that for a moment? I mean, it's this crazy, upside-down, uh, just wrong world in many ways, and it's how it begins. And uh, we gaze on this, and much we could talk about. We talked about persecution just a couple weeks ago, so I won't revisit all of that except to remind you. Jesus told us this would happen. This didn't catch God by surprise. He said, as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Uh, you know, in this world, it's going to go bad for you. In this world, there's going to be great trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. Like he, he had warned us. He had told us this world was broken. The Bible's been absolutely clear about that, that that would be there. But this is one of those moments that it's there. And I find myself thinking about that and maybe just in a very quick and in passing way, there's, the, you know, one of the great helps in those moments is to rest into the sovereignty of God. And I'm just going to kind of put little nuggets over here to the right of the screen if it helps, uh, you know, in the midst of this, that, that God is over that, that he's the one who's in charge, that he's the one that's allowing it in reasons that, that they didn't understand. And, and maybe we get some, you know, places we can look back and go, okay, see what he was doing. I can see why he allowed this. I mean, I can see what's happening in the midst of it. But in the midst of that, that's none of that's, that's there. But all you can do is say, okay, God, I know this hasn't caught you by surprise. I know it hasn't caught you by surprise. What are you doing? Where do we go? What do we do next? I mean, that's kind of the, the, the space of it. But there's this place of resting in that moment that certainly is a space that we're needing because this moment is one that God is working I mean, he, he's a God who, again, the goal is to catch up to him, to follow, to see what he's doing, and in the midst of that, to trust him, that he knows what he's doing, and look for that. Well, we'll see a little bit more on that, but before we leave those three verses that we just talked about, we need to go back and quickly talk about Saul. We also know as the Apostle Paul later, I mean, here he is, and it just lets us know that he flips a gasket in many ways in the midst of this. And it's almost a space where you and I are invited to see this whole thing because there he is. Our chapter begins just saying, hey, Paul was consenting to Stephen dying. He didn't, wasn't involved in actually killing Stephen. In chapter 7, they had stoned Stephen with stones. Paul wasn't doing it. They laid their cloaks at Paul's feet, and yet he was agreeing. He was approving. Now, we can look at the bigger picture, and we can kind of realize something happens in this moment. Um, I personally just believe Stephen's life and message gets under his skin. 
and it, and it just infuriates him. So his resistance to Christ amps up. And so he becomes this massively, you know, just a person opposed to Christ. So again, it tells us there in verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc. That's just, that's, just, that's just one of those words. Like, that's just picturesque. I mean, he makes a mess of it. He makes havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Later, Paul, when he gets saved, he will look back on this as one of his chief regrets. It is one of the things that just grieves him uh, over his own rebellion, but it's still a, a key moment. And, and God's going to continue working. In fact, we'll get to it in the next chapter that God's going to tell uh, Paul that he was kicking against the goads. He's, and Jesus is going to meet him and say, isn't it hard for you? you know, to kick against the goads. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about Paul's testimony, but quick answer to that. What's a goad? A goad is a sharp stick that you use to motivate an animal who is being stubborn. Some of you have one of those, or you have some, you can even imagine it with me for a moment. You kind of have one of those animals that you're trying to maybe get them move from one field to another, or you know if somebody is, and so they just, you know, you kind of invite them, that doesn't work. You open up the gate, that doesn't work. So pretty soon you pull out a sharp stick and you you know, just move, you know, like you're moving, you know, like we're going to get you through the gate. And, and, and so what's happening for Paul is God is trying to get a hold of him. I mean, God is drawing, the gospel's penetrating, Stephen's message is getting there. And so Paul, instead of responding to that well, instead of being like, fine, I'm moving, he is kicking it, which by the way is really painful. I mean, like, like, you're just, you know, fighting, and that's, that's what's happened to him, but that's just powerful for us to see in this moment, that here he is, that, that Saul is fighting this, and so God is at work in this, and part of what's happening, even in the midst of the persecution, is partly for this. Hey, we could spend a bunch of time on this, but I just give it to you in a quick way. Hey, God allows a lot of things to happen in our world, and sometimes he's getting a hold of people we have no idea he is. If they could have been told, hey, you know what? Paul the apostle is going to get saved. The man who's going to take the gospel to much of the Gentile world and writes much of the New Testament. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a hard day today, but some of what's happening in the midst of this is God is working through the hard spaces to get a hold of other people. And you know what? That might not always relieve us in the moment, but in eternity, we're going to be like, I'm down with that. You know, like, that's good. You know, as long as, as long as it has a purpose, as long as whatever I'm going through, you know, is going to go that way. And if it means somebody getting saved, hey, that's a good space. That's a good space for that place. And that's what's exactly what's happening in this moment. A place where we could look there and think, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a mess here, but God's working. Hey, a little bit of a, you know, one of those little funny, little, not funny, I don't even know, just interesting little comments. Hey, you think about all of this, and for some reason, I always find myself thinking about this moment of watching Paul go kind of berserk and kind of flip his lid, and there's one of those old little quotes that somebody just kind of shared just with you and said, hey, you know, if you throw a, a you know, a rock into a pack of dogs, uh, you know which one got hit because he's the one that's yelping, you know, kind of thing. Hey, that's exactly what's happening here. I mean, Paul is making a, is making a mess of things. But it's because he's under conviction. And, and, and I just want to just lay that out as hope in the midst of anybody's life that needs it now. Maybe there's somebody in your life right now that's like, man, they're becoming unhinged. You know, they're, they're, I mean, they used to be kind of resistant to Christianity, but man, they're, it's actually amping up. That's not always a bad thing. 
I'm not going to say it's always going to be a sign of this, but sometimes it is because God is on the move and at working in the midst of that, and it's worth seeing. Well, the church now is under persecution. Paul's again doing this, and we get it there in verse 4. It says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Those who were scattered, now they've been driven out. I mean, they were there in Jerusalem. Persecution is broken out. It is no longer safe uh, to live there in Jerusalem. And they began just scattering. They just began scattering. But here's one of the amazing things. Everywhere they go, they're taking the gospel with them. Everywhere they go, they're, they're preaching, which is a really fascinating thing. I want to hold before you this evening that one of that, that's partly what God is doing. That's partly what God is doing, that he would be in that sense kind of moving them out from where they are to get them where they need to be. But one of the things that we ought to just look into that is that need then to be responsive to that. If our goal is to follow God in our life, sometimes it just means redeeming the time. Sometimes it just means taking whatever you can in that moment. I take that word from Ephesians chapter 5 where it simply says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. God just tells us, here's what I want you to do. Walk circumspectly. It's an idea of carefully, precisely, with intention. He says, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to be foolish. I just want you to redeem the time. You know, the idea is that time is kind of slipping through our fingers. We only have what we have. Whatever situations you find yourself in, uh, just redeem those. Uh, Just, okay, well, I'm going to use this for God, whatever that is, if that's whatever it is. And that's kind of what's happening here. Hey, not to make it lighthearted or silly, but it's kind of one of those, you know, old age, you know, kind of mom's, you know, proverbs to us. If life gives you lemons, make lemonade. You know, that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, they didn't choose this. They didn't choose to get driven out of Jerusalem, but everywhere they go, they begin telling others about Jesus. And things are moving. The gospel that had been oriented here in Jerusalem and has kind of not really moved far from this is going to explode. I find myself thinking, you know, if this was a satanic attack, if this was the, you know, Satan kind of, you know, kind of gearing one of his spiritual wars against him, it's going to go badly for him. Because that which would seem to try to stamp out the church there in Jerusalem creates a thousand fires moving throughout the the, the lands. There's over 5,000 believers there in Jerusalem, and most of them now scatter throughout the land, begin taking the gospel everywhere they go. And there's this powerful reality that kind of just tells us that, that there is this space of like, okay, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been what I chose, but God, what do you have me to do? And without, again, just trying to make this um, overly silly or kind of just, but sometimes that's where it is in your life and mine. There are things way out of your control. But sometimes the goal is just, okay, this is where I am. God, what do you want me to do? You know, is there any space here for me to share the gospel? Is there something you want me to do? You know, and whatever that is, just being responsive to that becomes one of the keys that help us be on track with what God has. Wow, more on that in a moment, but let's keep going. Because one of them, something incredible happens. So again, just reading it in verse 4. It says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. 
For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Wow. So Philip, he ends up heading down to the Samaritans. He ends up going down to the city of Samaria. Hey, quick reminder, just for those who you know, have been with us. If not, you might want to look it up. Philip, who's Philip? Well, he was a co-laborer with Stephen, the man who died in chapter 7. That back in chapter 6, there was this space where the church was growing. I mean, just in exponential places, they had a need uh, to, to, you know, kind of raise people up to handle uh, distributing the food among the multitudes, and seven men were selected. Stephen was one. Philip was one. Faithful men. Faithful men who got in, they were entrusted to take care of a very specific need. They did so well, but what was true we talked about last week with Stephen is also true with Philip, that when you're faithful in little things, many times God entrusts you with more. That, that you know, when you're faithful in what he puts before you to do, oftentimes that opens up greater opportunities to, to serve him and open up in greater ways, which is always that way. You know, Jesus would say, hey, if you're not faithful in little things, Who's going to trust you with more? If you're not faithful, you know, if you look upon something and think, well, that's below me, that's beneath me, and yet that's not where they are. Philip, Stephen, they're faithful, and then God begins opening up the door. So Steve, Philip comes down here, and he ends up being scattered through the persecution. He ends up over in the city of Samaria, and he begins to preach Christ. He begins to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, if that's not surprising to you, it may be that you're not as familiar with kind of the, the history of this or even the way it talks about it in the Bible, but we know this is very clear. At this moment in history, Jews and Samaritans, they have no dealings with each other. They literally avoid each other at all costs. We get that picture with Jesus. You know, he kind of confronts this. He goes down to the, the, the well in Samaria in John 4 and the woman of Samaria is there, and, you know, she's just surprised. She's surprised that Jesus is talking to her, having anything to do with it, and she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then it just gives us that little footnote, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. True. Who are the Samaritans? Well, quick story. If you know your Bible from the Old Testament, that Babylonian, the Assyrian captivity, God sends Israel into a 70-year captivity, but he leaves some of the poorest in the land. And then they, the Assyrian and, and Babylonian uh, armies, they bring in people from other lands. While most of the Jews are in the Babylonian captivity, these intermarry. They, these intermarry, and they create this mixture of kind of mixture, quasi-Jewish, quasi, uh, you know, what other cultures were. So when the Jews come back uh, from the Babylonian captivity, these who are there are like, hey, we, we've been worshiping your God, let's do it together. And they're like, no way. Like, you're, you're cre- you, you have like a God in your own image. You've kind of mixed, you know, the true God with the false God. And so it entered into a massive divide. So at this moment in history, the Samaritans have their own temple, uh, they have their own worship system, they have their own ways, and they've made it up themselves. It's a, it's a worldly, it's a wrong philosophy, and the Jews were right. So Jesus will even answer, you know, the, the woman at the well that way, saying, hey, you know, salvation is of the Jews, like the gospel comes from that uh, in the midst of it. But now it's created this social, religious tension so that literally, even though Samaria is smack in the middle of the nation of Israel, the Jews at this point in time go all the way around. 
Like they never would go through the cities of each other. They would avoid each other. They would never have anything to do with each other. I mean, it's a massive divide. But persecution has a way of tearing things down. Like where do you go? Like where do you run when you're running? You know, and how do you go? So Philip, for some reason, ends up in Samaria. And there in Samaria, the gospel takes hold. I mean, again, you're just there. You're just kind of reading that whole thing. He just begins preaching. And then it just says, multitudes with one accord, verse 6, they heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. So he's teaching. God begins backing it up with some incredible miracles. But multitudes are just toning into what Philip's saying. I mean, it's this massive movement. Now, one of the things that's just fascinating, at least for me, is to understand when we think about this, we think about what Philip is doing here. I'll give you this nugget, probably not the best way to word it, but I'll just say it's slow obedience. Maybe even differently, forced obedience. What do I mean by that? Well, you might know. Jesus had actually given the plan, right? I mean, so at the beginning of the book of Acts, he had told the disciples that you know he was sending them out he had given them the great commission at the end of the of the gospels in Matthew in Matthew and Mark and Luke they all kind of tell us this hey go into all the world and then Jesus prepared them for that and he told them in Acts chapter 8 chapter 1 verse 8 he says you're going to receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth so here's what's going to happen I'm going to, you know, you guys are going to get empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's going to begin here in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to the outlying part around Jerusalem, which is Judea, and then you're going to go to Samaria. And then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. So you think about this little list here for a moment, and it's a very clear list, and actually it's a list that flows uh, through the book of Acts. In many ways, this is exactly what God is doing. But if you were to pause at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, you would look there and think, Jerusalem, check. Jerusalem, check. We got a, a, a fascinating church. I mean, it grew from 120 people in the upper room in chapter 1, and now we have over 5,000. I mean, 5,000 men. I mean, it is massive. It has exploded. God is doing amazing things. It is I mean, it's hard to even imagine how much fun that would be. Like, oh, this is cool. This is great. But here's the problem. That's where they stayed. Like, it didn't seem like anybody was like, oh, this is great. Remember Jesus told us to go and take this to, like, other spaces? So who's going to go? Like, that didn't happen. Like, it's almost like this place where you'd have to, I was like, I'm, I'm not going. Like, I'm staying here. And, and again, please hear me clearly. I, I kind of understand. Like, I wouldn't want to leave either. I mean, like, this is the happening space. This is where the gospel is being poured out. This is amazing. We, we so like this. This is so comfortable. This is so beautiful. Until it isn't. Until it isn't. Because you look at this and you think, well, what about Judea? What about Samaria? What about the ends of the earth? What about all these other people that don't have the gospel? Well, that's exactly what happens. And this chapter really moves us down those next two rungs. Go back and see it just so you see it, can see it in the midst of it. Back up in verse 1. It says that Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, notice, Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So 
where they hadn't gone right now, it's like they get scattered into Judea and they get scattered into Samaria. And pretty much everybody leaves. Once more, just kind of put the numbers to that for a moment. It says really the only ones that stay there in Jerusalem are like the apostles. So 12 guys. And there were 5,000 people that just entered their first mission trip, you know, into the surrounding areas, beginning to take the gospel into Judea and Samaria. It wasn't what they were thinking. It wasn't what they were planning, but they should have been. I mean, they should have been like, hey, this is what God told us to do. We should be kind of beginning to go that way, and yet they didn't. And so graciously, wonderfully, God kind of puts his hand down, and now this slow obedience becomes Again, I want to say forced obedience. That's not really probably totally true, but certainly helped. I don't know about you. I, you know, I don't know if this is going to even land for anybody else, but I can look on this and think, darn, that looks familiar sometimes. You know, sometimes you know, you, you know things that God is calling you to do. You know things that you're supposed to do. And sometimes we can, we can be in that space of, you know, I'm going to get around to that one of these days. You know, one of these days, I'm going to start doing that thing that he's laid on my heart. And sometimes, God expedites things. It's like, you know, do I have to, like, put my hand down to send you out? You know, do I have to, like, scatter you to make you go to Judea and Samaria? You know, and, and you might think, well, that's terrible. But then you can look at it again with eternal lens and say, I'm so glad he did that. We might have stayed there for comfortable forever. Like, we might have stayed right where we were supposed to. And, and he had, he'd made it clear hey, you need to go and do this. Like, you need to be, be going into the midst of this. And sometimes it is that way. Sometimes it is that way of God just working in our lives where he's moving, he's guiding, and, and he's doing all that he has in the midst of that, and, and that God would draw us into that. Well, hold that thought. We need to come back to it. But in the midst of this, we have another insertion. So Philip is there. He's preaching the gospel in Samaria. Join me there in verse 9. He says, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had so astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So Simon he steps into this whole place. We get to meet him. That's kind of how it begins. But a certain man named Simon, he's there. Without spending a bunch of time on this again, because we're trying to see this as an overview, boy, he's a troubling character. I mean, we look into this. He was a man who, previous to this, was involved in the occult. And using you know, sorcery, which we would understand would be probably demonic, uh, and thinks he had done powerful things so that people really thought, hey, this man's the power of God. This man is, he, that's what they even called him. They just said, hey, this man is the great power of God there in verse 10. I mean, so he had been this kind of, again, powerful, wicked, 
but one tapping into all of that. And up to this point in time, everybody has looked to this man, but something happens. People begin to get saved. Men and women who had used to listen to this, they get saved, and they're turning their lives over to Jesus, and they're believing the gospel. And Simon is watching that, and he also hears it, and it tells us that he believes. Tells us there in verse 13, Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, being amazed and seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So we get a chance just to walk through this whole thing, and it just gives us this quick kind of background nugget on Simon, though we'll see more in a moment. But in one sense, you're just watching this guy who is watching all these things happen, and and, and Philip is walking in that. I mean, he's just doing that. Now, we'll talk more about this man in a moment, whether this was right, not right, good, not good. But in one sense, I'll just kind of toss this out. Philip would have, you know, as far as we can see, he has no insight into that. I mean, he just, as far as he can tell, he's just walking in what God's putting before him. People are getting saved. This man believes. He says he believes. Philip baptizes him. I mean, he's a part of this whole thing. And it's this good kind of moment where it seems like things are happening. And that's an interesting thought. Well, put a pen in that. Because, again, this is kind of the way the chapter is kind of reading. So Philip is there in the Samaritan. Simon believes. Now we're going to go back to the apostles. Verse 14. So when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had, not fallen, he had fallen upon none of them, for they had all been, only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is a pretty crazy cool moment to watch what's happening. I'll put it to you this way. I was just going to tell you the apostles are catching up to God. Then in many ways what they're doing here is that they get a chance to see what God is doing and follow and, and be there. In fact, again, I just want you to think about that for a moment, and I'm really wishing I could say this well. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. So I feel like I've sometimes I've tried to share uh, this truth with some people before, and I just don't know if it always lands the way I want it to land. And so even right now, I'm feeling like, I don't know if I can say this clear enough. God, help me to say it better, help you guys to understand, because here's this amazing thing. See, the apostles are there. They're in Jerusalem, and they just hear. They hear, hey, the gospel's breaking out in Samaria. They're like, Wow. <laughs> they, they are, you hear what's happening. You know, they, they, they're there and they heard that Samaria had received the word of God and they decide, we need to check it out. We need to check it out. So they actually send Peter and John. You need to go over to Samaria. Go and find out if this thing is, is authentic, is, if this is really God working. They get down there and, and when they come down there, they, it's obviously that they recognize, hey, God's at work in this. And so they, in verse 15, they pray for the people there. They pray for those who are surrendering their life to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit pours out in incredible ways. Wow. That just raises a few nuggets that we just want to think through for a moment. So why had the Holy Spirit not yet fallen on anybody there in Samaria? Now, part of this raises up that question that we've already talked about a couple times in our study of Acts, so I just touch it briefly. The pouring out of the power of the Holy Spirit was promised. Uh, This baptism of the Spirit that Jesus talks about in chapter 1. Is that something that happens when you get saved, or is is it something that's available after you get saved? Hey, very good Bible students argue both spaces. I've become a much more simple person in my my years, and I think, you know, I don't really care what you call it. I want it. 
You know, I want all that he has, and you should, we, should, we should want the power of the Holy Spirit. We should be crying out for that, the filling, the empowering, and, and that's what we should long for and want. But interestingly enough, it's happened to nobody yet. It's happened to nobody yet there in Samaria. Now, it's been happening in Jerusalem and other places as Pentecost happened and people got saved. The work of the Spirit's been moving and happening. Here, here it's happened to nobody yet. Why? Well, probably for a few reasons. Probably one of them is, is a church unity kind of thing. I mean, the Holy Spirit is so working so that we don't end up with a, you know, a Samaritan church and a Jewish church. You know, I mean, in one sense, he's doing something in his good design that is a part of that. I like that. I think that's genuinely true. But the main thing that I think he's doing is that he is moving the apostles to catch up to what God is doing. He's moving the apostles to catch up to what God is doing. See, if you could see this rightly, hey, the gospel is poured out there in Jerusalem. It wasn't their doing. It was God's doing. It was the Holy Spirit that poured out, and the gospel has broken loose there in Jerusalem. But now the gospel is going to move to Judea and Samaria. And, and what I want you to try to see with me here for a moment, this was God's doing. This was God's doing. This was not their doing. This was God's doing. And now what they're needing to do is catch up to God. In fact, this is the whole book of Acts. If you, if you could be a student of the book of Acts and go through and study it sometime this way, I just want you to go and look at it and understand it was never a plan that men came up with. The whole book of Acts, they're just kind of like, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> there God goes over there. I guess we're going that direction. You know, it's like, oh, there he goes again. I guess we're going that direction. And, and in one sense, it is that way where the whole goal is to catch up to him. And I like that. And I want to put before you again that I believe that's God's goal in your life. I think that's God's goal in my life that he wants us to be in a kind of space that we're following him. They were saying, God, what are you doing? Where you go, I want to go. What you're doing, I want to do. Whatever that looks like, I will follow you. But once more, we live in such a man-centered, human-centered world, and we are so arrogant and prideful in our own flesh that sometimes, we, even without thinking about it, we see this in reverse. And so we kind of imagine that if we're going to see the gospel go forward uh, in, in our world today, if there's going to be something happen, then we need to get the greatest minds uh, to go back into some, you know, back room, boardroom, and lay out plans, and everybody get there, you know, come up with a solid, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do, and, and, and we got to come up with a budget, and we're going to have to come up with a, a flow chart, and we're going to have to come up with, with, with orders, and then we're going to kind of make steps, and then we're going to be like, we're going to end that meeting and say, hey, God, hey, bless all of our work, because we're going to reach the world for Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against planning entirely. I know that God works through that, but I also find over and over in Scripture that God tells us, you know, in James, is like, who are you to say, hey, the Lord's going to do such as, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, and, and you to be like, hey, we're going to go and do such and such, we're going to do, it's, that's arrogance, that in many ways, our space in life is, God, what are you doing? Because I want to do it too. I, I want to I go where you're going. I want to do what you're doing. And that's a pretty fascinating way to do life. In fact, if you could choose it, I think you would choose it. I think if you could choose, if you could see the two, like, okay, you make plans, you do all the work, and hope and pray for God to bless, or God's doing a work, and you're going to say, God, I want to I follow you. 
What does that look like? Where, where do you have me to go? Where, does that ha- where do you have me to be? That's an entirely different journey. But I don't know about you. I'm just going to tell you, tell you from my perspective, like, I love that idea. I think that sounds like, wow. I mean, that, that sounds great. In fact, that's what Jesus would say. So, you know, there at the, at the pool of Bethesda, he heals a, a blind man, I mean, a paralyzed man, and, and the Pharisees get all mad at him, and they eventually ask him, like, why did you do this? Why did you heal this guy on the Sabbath? And Jesus' answer is one of my favorites. He's like, I only do the things my father is doing. Everything that he's doing, he shows me, and I do as well. Every, I, I, I never do anything alone. I do everything I do in being with him. And I love that. I love that. And there's this powerful picture of life that in many ways, that becomes the goal. That becomes the goal. Now, here's the deal. For sometimes, we, we get behind scenes. We get out of whack. We get into a space where God's moving and we're behind it. And so we have to do what these guys do. It's like, oh no, God's doing something over here. Like, I guess I should go check it out. Yep, he's in it. That's, that's God. You know, this is him doing it, I guess. That's what I'm doing now, you know, I mean, because he's doing, and I, I need to be where he is, and what an incredibly different journey that is. What an incredibly different space that that would be, and yet that's exactly where they are. Well, a little bit more on that in a moment. Let's leave that and just say, okay, that's a good example for us, that they're there, they come, and they say, hey, God's in this. They pray for him. The Holy Spirit pours out Again, verse 17, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon, he steps into this and does something incredibly wrong. In fact, it's where we actually have a whole word that was created. We call it simony. Maybe that's not a word you ever use or think through. Simony, if you look it up in a dictionary, it's a noun that simply says buying or selling of something spiritual, including church offices or ecclesiastical preferment. It's a dictionary definition. So this has become a place where people look at something that they want spiritually and they offer money for it. And the sad reality is that church history is replete with this. Um, where people, you know, whether as the church moved into positions of power through the Catholic Church ages, people actually bought uh, their positions and, you know, tried to earn favor by by paying money to get positions, to get authority, to get power, and it became, again, what we know is simony. Now, that's exactly what this man is doing here. He is, he looks upon this powerful work that this apostle is doing, says, I want that, and he does probably what he has done his whole life. Again, we already know he's been a man who was involved in sorcery. He was involved in the occult stuff, and probably he's done this a dozen times. He watched something, saw somebody, somebody did, and said, "Teach me to do that. I'll pay you. You know, give me uh, whatever it takes." And, and he has bought his way into the power that he had. And he looks upon this and thinks, "Hey, let's do it again. Let's do that again." And then Peter steps into this moment, and he rebukes him. Verse twenty. Peter said to him. Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Wow. Sliding that up just for a moment, this raises a number of questions we just quickly toss out. So is this guy saved? I mean, is Simon someone who is actually a real believer? Well, you know, the easiest answer to answer this is like God knows. I think about it, he gives it to us in Timothy. The Lord knows those who are his. And so many times you could look at those kind of situations and say, hey, God is the only one that really knows. That said, Peter's rebuke is a prophetic rebuke. Um, he speaks about things that he couldn't have just known naturally, that God gives him insight spiritually, and they seem to be pretty telling uh, in, in the sense that it would be exposing this man for not a genuine believer. And now, that's not something that they saw before us. I mean, Philip, he, this guy said he believed. Philip baptized him. He's a part of the church, and yet he's brought this in there, and then Peter just tells him, I mean, you look upon this, uh, as he says, your money perish with you, which is a perish is a pretty powerful word. That's John 3, 16, you know, uh, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. That, that's the same word. And so he says, your money and you both perish because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this. Like this isn't, this doesn't belong to you. This isn't yours. You're not connected to this, he tells him. Your heart is not right, he says. He says, I can see it. You're like, inside you, your heart is not right. You need to repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray. If perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, because I see. Again, this is a word of knowledge that's given by the Spirit. He says, I can see that you are poisoned by bitterness and you're bound by iniquity. Those seem pretty telling words that would, it would just say, okay, this man doesn't have the mark of a true believer, and now Peter gives a very powerful rebuke that, you know, again, in the sense of, of timing of that, as this guy was a new believer, he would be much more gracious. He gives a much more powerful rebuke, and Simon's response is incredibly wimpy. So he responds, and, and he simply says in verse 24, and Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. She would say, that's like a really wimpy response. Uh, that's not like, oh, you're right. <laughs> uh, forgive me. Forgive me for my bitterness. Forgive me for my, you know, poison by iniquity. Uh, my, you know, bounty. It's like, oh, just pray that the bad things you just said don't come on me. Like, I'm not going to pray. You should just pray that all the bad things you just said, those aren't true. Because like, I don't, but there's no repentance there. There's no, I'm sorry. There's no, you're right, which he was right. And so Simon becomes this mark of one that just is this ugly space in the midst of it. And part of the example for us in the midst of this idea of following God is just not embracing the things that God's not in. I mean, sometimes the idea is that we need to catch up to God and see what he's doing, but we also need to catch up and see what he's not doing. And Peter's able to say, God's not in this. God is not in this. He's not with you, and this isn't genuine, and we will not put our hand to this. You know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be a part of that, and that's a good kind of space that's needed in this place of following God. If, if we're going to live a life that says, God, I want to follow. I want to follow you. Well, sometimes we have to catch up to him, and sometimes we need to recognize where he's not and say, that's, we have no part in that. You have no part in that, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be a part of what that looks like. Maybe helpful for somebody. Last little nugget for us this evening. It says in verse 25, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Wow. 
So Peter and John leave the city of Samaria, but everywhere they go, through the city of Samaria, through the region of Samaria, they begin preaching the gospel. They begin preaching the gospel in all the villages that are there. And I can kind of just say it this way. Hey, when you figure out where God is, stay there. Like, join him in what he's doing. Because this is not what they've been doing up to this point in time. I mean, before this, I mean, this has not been the heart they had. Even with Jesus, you know, met the woman at the well, they weren't in on it. I mean, one time, you know, you guys probably know that James and John were like, they saw a city of the Samaritans, you're like, you want us called on fire? Like, kill them all? Can we do that? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of thing. You know, they had never done this before. But they have figured out, God's on the move. God is saving Samaritans. So you know what? We're going to do that as well. We're going to do that as well. If, if God is in the business uh, of saving Samaritans, then it just tells us there in verse 25, you know, it says, so they, you know, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And that's a good space for us just to think through, to watch the change to watch what God has brought them in the midst of that. And again, that's part of our thought here this evening. So just putting our highlight back across some of the things we've seen. I mean, it's been a number of little nuggets, but part of this, again, is to watch this place where God is allowing persecution and is scattering believers and the gospel is being preached, ends up with the Samaritans, and now they're like, okay, God's doing that. And so now they're gonna spend their time catching up to that. They're going to spend their time saying, okay, God, where you are, that's where we want to be. Where you are, that's what we're going to do. I mean, we get the opposites. We see Saul making havoc, Simon, and his mess in the midst of it. It's things we don't want to be a part of. But these others are spaces that we do. And so I find myself just bringing it back and saying, you know, I don't know where this lands with you. I don't know where this is. But I just want to come back and try to say what I've said throughout, what I said at the beginning, that one of the great keys of the Christian life is learning that God actually means it. Follow me. Like, join me. Follow me in what I'm doing. Follow me in in, in my life. Follow me in what that looks like. And so that the real Christian life is a space that we would long to be doing that. God, show me what you're doing. Show me what you have for me. And many times it's going to be that space where sometimes God moves us further than we thought we'd go. Opens up doors we didn't think we were going to walk through. But it's like, that's a God thing right there. It's a God thing right there. There he goes. I want to do that as well. I'm going to catch, I want to, I want to be where he is and then to allow our life to change because it just does. Boy, I wish I could say this better, but I need to kind of just say it and end. What an amazing verse there in verse 25. They preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. This breaks centuries of religious, racial tension, and it's in a moment, in a moment that the walls that had separated Samaritans and Jews, it's, it's just, okay, if God's saving them, he's saving them like he does us, and it just, and in this incredible moment, gospel moment, it, it, the gospel is just touching lives and changing things in amazing ways, and that's this enjoyable, desirable, like, God, we want to do that Like, I want to be there. And I don't know where you are. But I'm telling you, it's where I want to be. You know, I've been doing uh, this, pastoring a church now. 
what is it, 27, 28 years, coming up in 28 years, um, in the midst of this whole space, I can just honestly tell you, hey, there were days where I did it the other way. There were days, I mean, because I mean, I thought that's how I do, where people would come and they would ask me questions. So like, Jim, what's your, what, what's your like five-year plan as a church? Like, you know, where, where are you guys going? You know, what are you going to do? And I kind of thought I needed like a five-year, 10-year plan. And so I came up with some five-year, 10-year plans. I mean, I like, okay, this is what we're going to think about doing and we're going to do this. And it's really, really funny that God didn't ever do any of my plans. I mean, it's like I came up with plans that were really, really good ideas and, and he never did them. But so often he just moved in different directions. And, and, and I can simply say, I have one plan right now. I'm do whatever he's going to do, whatever that looks like. I mean, yes, we, we make goals, we look at things that we think God's in it, but we change in a moment. And, and, and I, if you were to say, Jim, so what's your plan for, you know, the next five years? You know, how do you see that playing out? And I could kind of come down to it and say, this is my plan. My plan is I want to follow him. Whatever he's doing, I want to do that. You know, and it will probably catch me off guard. It will probably sometimes say, okay, I guess we're going to go do this now. I guess we're going to go do that now. And that's, that's my one goal. And, and I kid you not. I mean, that is, that, that, that is just an incredible space that changes the whole dynamic, but it's the right way to do it. Again, I'm speaking words that maybe aren't landing with everybody, but I have wasted a lot of time coming up with plans that God was not interested in. I mean, I have, I mean, I gave him some really good plans. Let's just be honest. I mean, you know, I mean, I came, I mean, and they, they were great plans and I put in so much work into them and then it just, God doesn't do it. But then his plans are so much better. And, and I find myself living my life honestly that way, that saying, I'm watching. I'm watching for what he's doing. I'm watching for what he has for us as a church. And so, you know, if, if he opens up a door over in this, it's like, well, I guess we're going to walk through that door. You know, look at that. It was not, I mean, that's how we're going to move because our goal is to be with him and, and whatever that looks like. And that's a, a very different way of doing life. But I love it. I love that God is that, that God is inviting us to say, hey, follow me. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. You don't, know how, you, know, you don't spend all your days figure, trying to figure those things out. Hey, you just follow me. It's like, okay, I'm in. Because like, I want to learn those lessons and say, okay, that's how the church really moves. That's how the, the church you know, takes the gospel into spaces by, by just following what God is doing. So that's my goal for life, and I'm just inviting you into it as well. Now, I don't know where that lands. As we just close this evening, you can close your Bibles, and I'm just going to take a moment and pray. Maybe you're all the way on the outside of this. Maybe you're here in this room or watching online and you don't know Jesus. Can I tell you, that's the beginning call, where Jesus from the very get-go looked at the disciples and simply said, follow me. Follow me. Like, come this direction. Like, I have life. I'll change you. I'll, I'll change your whole life. Come follow me. And maybe that needs to be a very beginning step for you this evening. And I invite you to follow Jesus. But maybe you're his this evening. And maybe... You're doing this really well. Maybe you've figured this out for your life as well, that this is what God is doing. Or maybe like me, you're trying to do it a wrong way and you're frustrated because you're coming up with plans that God does not seem to even pay attention to. And, and you have ideas of all the things that he could do if he would just you know, do it the way you think he should do it. And maybe you're frustrated because you thought that's how it was supposed to be done instead of coming and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm watching for the cloud. When the cloud moves, 
that's what I'm going to be involved in as well. Every day, I'm just going to look and say, God, what are you doing? Like, what do you have for my life today? Is there, is there something you want to do? Then let's go do that. Let's, let's make that what we're doing because I want to live a life in relationship with my God, following him. So let's take a moment and pray and ask that God would draw us after that in a way that would help us be followers, followers of Jesus. Father, I thank you for this now, and I love this reality. Jesus, I love watching you. I love that passage I shared about in John 5, where you showed us that's how you did what you did. That everything you did, you did because God was doing it. And you were following. You lived that perfect life, even in your humanity, even in humbling yourself to that space, in a way that would invite us to live the same. God, thank you for the honesty of even our chapter as we got to go through and see some of the slowness to get it, some of the slowness to respond to your guidance, and yet how faithful you were to draw them forward. I thank you that they responded. I thank you for Peter and John and the other apostles that they were able to see you moving and say, okay, I guess we're doing ministry to the Samaritans now. I guess that's now a part of what is in, in our, involved in our life because that's what God you're doing. Teach us to be those who are that way. God, I want it. I want to be one that follows you. I want to be one that follows what you have for my life. I want to live this journey out that way. And I simply pray for that for me and for anybody else that's landing with this evening. Lord, if we have been trying to live our life as if we were in charge, as if we needed to plan everything and then just hope you bless our plans, show us the folly of that. Oh, give us wisdom where we need wisdom to make good decisions and even some good plans, but always laid at your feet, always with the goal of saying, God, is this what you're doing? Is this where you are? Because I want to be with you. I want to follow you. I want the world to see that you're God. I want them to see that you're real and to see that because we, we are living that life of walking with you and following you. Help us to do that better. Draw us into it. Even now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.